A warrior is defined as a brave or experienced soldier or fighter. Let me tell you, Steve Aiden is a pro-life warrior. Steve has stared down opponents of life in courtrooms and state houses across the country, and won more often than not. Today, I'm honored to speak with Steve Aiden, Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel at Americans United for Life, about some of the greatest victories he's been involved with and all of the opportunities there are to come. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I'm Tom Shakely, and I'm joined here by Steve Aiden. Steve, welcome. It's great to be here with you. It's my pleasure and privilege, Tom. Thank you. So, Steve, let's get right into it. When did you join Americans United for Life? Well, Tom, as you know, our CEO and President, Catherine Glenn Foster, was appointed to that position in uh, May of uh, just over two years ago. Uh, she asked me that summer to take over the legal department at AUL, and I did. So I'm coming up on two years in August, and very, very privileged to be here. All right, now we've got to account for the rest. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm one of those people uh, that find that question hard to answer. I was born on the space coast of Florida, where my dad was involved in the space industry, beginning with Gemini, Mercury, Apollo. He did it all. And uh, we moved out to the Pacific, where he worked in the Pacific test range on things like uh, ICBM, testing and uh, uh, later the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, uh, the understanding that the military could fire a missile from Redstone, California, have it go 4,200 miles over the Pacific Ocean and always land within 100 yards of its target uh, at my, uh, in my hometown, uh, the uh, island I grew up on, uh, was very sobering and very inspiring in a way. Um, I watched that generation of scientists and leaders uh, and engineers like my father um, put a man on the moon, uh, later uh, hit the bullet with the bullet, so to speak, uh, that made Mikhail Gorbachev stand down, won the Cold War. Uh, so I really have a, a, a strong understanding that virtually anything is possible when you put your mind to it. And I've tried to take that into the pro-life movement and apply it to uh, what we do here because we're on a moonshot. Uh, we have to overturn Roe versus Wade and legal abortion and uh, restore protections for all human life in law. Uh, that's what we're about, and uh, my background is really why I'm inspired to do that. So, Steve, as I mentioned, you are our chief legal officer and general counsel here at Americans United for Life. Uh, that begs the question, uh, your alma mater, where did you go to law school? <laughs> I'm a proud Hoya graduate of Georgetown University Law Center, uh, way back before the turn of the century. Um, and uh, before that... Which century my, are we talking about? <laughs> um, before that, I uh, graduated from University of Hawaii, the Fighting Rainbows, as an undergraduate, uh, now known as the Rainbow Warriors for probably obvious reasons. Uh, but very proud of both institutions and very thankful for the opportunities that they have given me. Well, I'm glad you made the um, hard choice, at least it would be for many, to leave beautiful Hawaii to come to a comparatively less beautiful place, but a very important place uh, here in Washington, D.C. to do this work. Um, where did you work before you came to America's United for Life? What brought you here? 
Well, I've been in a, a nonprofit uh, pro-life and conservative work for uh, much of my career. I started in commercial and personal injury litigation in Honolulu uh, and came to Virginia back in the, uh, the mid-90s uh, uh, to do conservative legal work and have been with several different organizations, most recently coming over to Americans United for Life from Alliance Defending Freedom, where I was for nine years uh, and uh, very um, thankful for the opportunities that uh, ADF gave me and still treasure many of the friends that I have there. Why are you so passionate about fighting for a culture of life and, and laws that reflect that? You've got a varied background. Um, as you mentioned, your, your family, your father, uh, his witness in terms of contributing to uh, the good for America. But what, what drew you to the life issues particularly? Life is a gift from God. Um, the uh, older I get, the uh, stronger that conviction is, and it should be uh, celebrated, defended as such. Uh, that is an important role, I think, that lawyers play uh, as the uh, Bible talks about defending the defenseless, uh, the orphans, uh, those who cannot speak up for themselves. Uh, that's why I'm here. I'm also here because I think we're at a uh, remarkable tipping point in this whole fight. Um, we're coming to a point where even liberal commentators are saying that Roe versus Wade will be overturned. We will succeed in the Supreme Court. That will return the issue of abortion to the states, and we'll have to redouble the fight uh, in the states. But uh, culturally, more people than ever call themselves pro-life, more people than ever, especially young people, recognize that life in the womb is human life. Every human life is worth fighting for. No human lives deserve less protection in law than others. Uh, that's really uh, what we're fighting for. That's really the truth on which AUL is founded, and that's why I'm proud to be part of AUL and part of this fight. You have an impressive litigation history. Um, I mentioned in the intro, uh, you know, I talked about staring down Planned Parenthood in court. Uh, what is that like? Uh, and has Planned Parenthood gotten stronger or weaker? What, what is the trend with them as a as sort of America's deadliest nonprofit? Well, as you know, recently Planned Parenthood fired its uh, leader, Dr. Leona Wen, because she wasn't political enough. Year by year, the uh, market share, if you will, of real health care that Planned Parenthood uh, provides has gone down, while its uh, market share of abortion has gone up. So when you talk about Planned Parenthood, Federation of America, you really have to be clear that you're talking about the nation's largest abortion provider. They have a cadre of lawyers in New York and in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, I know many of them. They know me. Uh, we respect each other. We're cordial with each other, but very clear about the differences in the way that we see life. Um, have they become more effective or less? Uh, they're quite a bit scattered. They're running to and fro, uh, trying to trying to sue against uh, dozens and dozens of laws across the country, and I think they've overplayed their hand. Uh, they've, for example, they have filed five lawsuits alleging that uh, all of the abortion laws of a given state taken in combination with each other uh, result in an undue burden on access to abortion within that state. And those are hard cases to litigate. 
um, resource-wise, lawyer-wise, uh, but uh, they can't simply drop them. Uh, they were, I think they were filed at a time uh, before uh, President Trump won the presidency and the shift in the Supreme Court came. So they're kind of stuck with uh, what I would call a poor strategic choice, that of playing whack-a-mole with many different uh, state abortion laws uh, in courts across the country. So, yeah, stretched a bit thin. Uh, does that make them less uh, effective? Probably. Uh, they have good friends at uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, which carries their water a lot. They have friends at the Center for Reproductive Rights. Uh, they are a large uh, fighting force, uh, and we have friends also uh, lined up against them. Uh, but it's always a challenge uh, to marshal enough resources against them. I think it's, it's, it's interesting as you look at Planned Parenthood because they have an interest in wanting to appear invulnerable, right? Uh, to appear to be um, sort of a, a contender that can't be contended with. And yet even in, in cases where they seem to have some um, victory, I'm thinking most recently of, uh, of the, the Box versus Planned Parenthood case where the, the Supreme Court was unable to really take up the issue um, of, of non-discrimination um, based on um, you know, sex, gender, and disability, even in that instance where the Supreme Court punted, Justice Thomas's writing really delivered them what, I mean, it's, it's really a, a pyrrhic victory for them. I mean, he said very explicitly, if this issue, you know, to paraphrase, were anything other than abortion, the court would, would have no hesitancy in recognizing that, you know, the, the intentional marginalization of a human being for a reason like race is, is simply beyond the pale, not to even to speak of, of legal matters, right? So I, I think that speaks to your point about just the strategic quandary Planned Parenthood is in, where even when they're winning, it, it doesn't seem like yeah. it's going to be a, a particularly permanent victory. Yeah, they can't win for losing. Um, and uh, as you said, uh, Justice Thomas, in that separate uh, opinion that he uh, wrote in the Indiana case, uh, really kicked them around the courtroom. It really raised the whole issue of the eugenic nature of abortion as an African-American man uh, and, and threw it out there on the table where it had never been before. It had never been discussed by any of the justices in any of the decisions or papers in the Supreme Court. And now it's very, very much an issue. Uh, in, that same in that same case, as you know, uh, the other half of that case was uh, a victory for Indiana in which the Supreme Court said, uh, really without much analysis, yes, uh, Indiana can insist that uh, human fetal remains be treated humanely uh, because they are, after all, uh, human beings. And I think that's, a, that's an important, well, thoughtful huge. approach that the Supreme Court's taken that will loom larger and larger in the years to come. It's huge, yeah. It's, it's a recognition of, of what what the the person is at the center of the question, right? And that's that's something that's difficult to really get people on record in. So, yeah, sure. Okay, so what case that you've worked on, Steve? Um, or you know, you can you can you don't have to rank this as number one, but what what is one of the ones that you're most proud of so far in your career? Uh, Tom, I've been privileged to uh, represent uh, half a dozen states uh, in litigation defending uh, common sense abortion laws. Louisiana, uh, South Dakota, um, Arizona, uh, I think. But the, the cases that mean the most to me are the ones where you see the real-world result. So I'm thinking of 
a case in which uh, we intervened in uh, abortion litigation in Arizona uh, and um, argued in the Arizona Court of Appeals to a victory in which the Supreme Court, uh, I'm sorry, the Court of Appeals of Arizona upheld uh, a number of um, abortion regulations and protections for rights of conscience for uh, conscientious health care workers there. What that, hap- what, what that resulted in was uh, applying the rules of uh, uh, abortion regulation in Arizona to chemical abortion facilities, facilities that only provided RU46 chemical abortions and not surgical abortions. And the upshot was that six of those abortion facilities closed virtually overnight. And uh, the number of abortions in Arizona uh, dropped uh, the next year rather dramatically. Um, I uh, am very thankful, as I think, of all the lives that were saved in that instance. Uh, Representing Louisiana uh, in um, a series of lawsuits was also a tremendous privilege. Uh, One of those cases resulted in uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirming that Louisiana had a right to shut down dangerous substandard abortion providers just as it would any other kind of outpatient medical facility. And uh, that resulted in the closure of several abortion facilities there because uh, really uh, these places in Louisiana uh, elsewhere are just unspeakably horrible as our uh, publication unsafe uh, documents so well. It's really, I cannot begin to tell you how risky and dangerous many of these places are. It's a fascinating contradiction too, right? Because so many advocates uh, for abortion, Planned Parenthood or otherwise, they want desperately to make this case that, look, abortion is health care, is what we're told. It's just a medical procedure like any other. You know, we've heard it being compared to going to the dentist uh, or having a routine surgery. And yet it's also the case that these advocates uh, fight desperately to try to ensure that, that none of their abortion facilities are regulated in the way that any other healthcare facility would be regulated, right? Uh, and so drawing that out, I think, is, is another aspect that, um, that makes the work of American Standard for Life so important uh, because there is a contradiction there that's unresolved. Sure. So you've worked with, with many great uh, pro-life attorneys general, solicitors general around the country. I mean, can you speak to the, the, the things that can be accomplished on their level, you know, what they can do uh, to advance life-affirming law? Um, yeah, it really has been our privilege to work closely with many, many uh, state attorneys general's offices and solicitor general's offices in defending um, abortion regulations. Uh, there has been a real sea change in the quality of representation there. There was a time 30 or 40 years ago when uh, the defense of an abortion law would fall to just really anyone uh, on the AG's staff, and unfortunately, some of those cases that went up to the Supreme Court were not handled all that well. Uh, that's not true, uh, by and large, today. There's been a terrific uh, f- constant flow from uh, particularly private practice, uh, some of the larger law firms, into the attorney general's offices in different states across the country, bringing seasoned litigators and uh, litigators who are uh, just thoroughgoingly minded not only to see abortion laws upheld, women protected, lives saved, uh, but some of them actually uh, in those positions because 
ultimately, like us, they would like to see Roe versus Wade overturned and the issue returned to the states and to the people where it belongs. And so we have uh, wonderful opportunities to uh, collaborate uh, in strategy and um, how we approach the briefing, uh, how we sometimes uh, approach the uh, the discovery and the trial preparation, and we try to take each one of them as it comes because uh, anytime we're asked by uh, an attorney general staff to assist in this way, it's a great privilege and a great opportunity. Okay, so one of the things that we want to do through Life, Liberty, and Law is break down the often complex and kind of um, untransparent uh, aspects of, of this issue one of the things Americans United for Life does is uh, submit amicus briefs. I'm hoping you can help break down what are these briefs and why are they important? Yeah, amicus means simply friend of the court. It's a fancy Latin lawyer term. That's all it is. You're not a party to the case, but you have information, expertise, or the like that would assist the court in making its determination. Uh, so you submit a friend of the court brief. Sometimes on behalf of AUL in its own name, Sometimes we serve as the lawyers and the brief writers for other organizations, groups of uh, pro-life doctors or healthcare professionals, uh, groups of uh, pro-life academics, um, uh, pro-life uh, pregnancy centers. Uh, we've represented many times just presenting their position on uh, the facts uh, as they really are uh, and as the laws it really should be. Um, the purpose of the amicus brief should be to provide the court, usually the Supreme Court, sometimes the Circuit Courts of Appeal, with uh, information that the party to the case uh, either can't bring to the table or doesn't have the room in their brief to bring to the table. Uh, additional information that um, is important for the court to know. Uh, so we tried to say something new and fresh uh, when we filed amicus briefs and not, uh, and not say what has been said before. Um, and I think the most important function is that it uh, sends strong signals about uh, where the law is going and where it ought to go, both to the court, to the parties, uh, other amicus groups, uh, the state attorneys general file on this a lot, uh, the members of Congress, we filed a couple of briefs in the last uh, six months for, uh, in one case, 90 members of Congress, in another case, uh, over 60 members of Congress, just telling the court that uh, the members of Congress signing on to the brief uh, have a strong view about the reasons for the law. I think that's an important role for an amicus brief uh, to play. Uh, the, the best kind of amicus briefing does what we do when we work with state AGs. We uh, help uh, position uh, the uh, legal arguments, uh, hopefully the evidence in a way that uh, makes for the best possible chances for success. Ultimately, hopefully, the best possible chances for another case before the Supreme Court, which will uh, provide the court with an opportunity to uh, cut back on uh, the right to abortion in Roe versus Wade or even reconsider and overturn it. One of the many things you do at America's Center for Life is to oversee the government and legislative affairs of the organization. Uh, you write um, much of our model bills available to the states. I'm curious, what separates you know a well-written piece of legislation from a poorly written one? 
succinctness. How's that for a one-word answer? Beautiful. Um, we have uh, over 50 model bills in our, uh, in our suite, um, and uh, many of those are included in the publication you referred to, Defending Life, which comes out annually. Uh, this year it will come out in December. Uh, Defending Life 2020, we're very proud of the publication because it's used as a key source for legislation by state legislators, by uh, state pro-life activists, uh, others. Uh, in fact, um, USA Today and the Arizona Republic just ran a, a joint research and writing project that resulted in uh, a, um, uh, a piece uh, that they published uh, stating that Americans United for Life is responsible for, quote, the lion's share, unquote, of all the model legislation that's been passed in the, uh, uh, the uh, pro-life realm. Uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. We're very proud of that uh, and um, uh, thankful that uh, you know our work is recognized in that way. Um, I say succinctness is key, and the reason why we have so many different bills is because each bill should take on a topic in a way that's cogent, provides background documentation, uh, addresses a real problem, and does so in a way that's not only uh, coherent to the reader, uh, but also coherent to a court that may review it, and uh, that is uh, strong enough uh, to pass muster uh, under the Supreme Court's uh, standards. Um, that those are the things that I think make a good bill. Uh, most of our models have been challenged in some way in court. Most of them uh, have been upheld in court. Uh, so we'll keep refining them uh, and we'll keep uh, improving them. We'll keep adding new ones uh, and uh, hopefully uh, down the road another uh, Arizona Republic or USA Today will write about uh, uh, the uh, even greater impact that AUL's model legislation has had across the country. Yeah, and of course these are across the whole, the whole range, the whole spectrum of bioethical issues, of human life issues, um, you know, I think the, the aspect of, of these that gets lost sometimes um, is that the, the, the laws need to withstand judicial scrutiny, right? And that's a thing that I think can get lost in, in the heat of an issue, regardless of what your position is when you're advocating um, a particular law, is you need to make sure that this is going to hold up. And uh, so that's been, that's been a key advantage of the approach here at Americans United for Life uh, and certainly something that, that folks will be able to see in Defending Life 2020, which you mentioned. Um, and this is, uh, actually, this will be the 15th year of Defending Life. So it's a, it's a big year from that perspective, too. Mm -hmm. It's become an essential resource, a, a playbook for lawmakers across the country uh, looking for, for what to do. Um, Steve, what is the next frontier on life issues across the states? If there is, a, if there is one, or maybe there are many. Well, you know, I'm very excited. There's so much passion and conviction among uh, state legislators uh, for protecting life today. And that only seems to increase year by year. So what we do is provide them material. We work with them. We try to tailor uh, our model bills to their situation. Uh, sometimes we um, help them to calibrate their expectations if they're in a difficult uh, judicial district. Uh, sometimes we uh, help... Uh, uh, ramp up their expectations if they're in uh, a place where 
the Court of Appeals is likely to uh, to um, affirmatively uh, pass muster on their desire to protect human life. Uh, the bottom line is that I, I, I hope that more and more state legislators are understanding that it's not just what you can pass, uh, but it's what you pass and um, is enacted, actually goes into effect, into law, um, and uh, is, a, is upheld in court. That matters. Only laws that are enacted and upheld in court, if they're challenged, uh, protect women's health and save lives. And that's what we're really all about. So I hope that um, many more of them, as they engage this passion, uh, are doing so with, uh, with savvy uh, and with a mind toward saving as many lives, protecting as many women as they possibly can, and doing that in a wise way. And that's why AUL is here to help. In that way, you're, you're riffing off of your colleague Clark Forsyth's view of the, the, the importance of prudence in the public square, right, of, of the, the most achievable good possible. I, I wonder, um, is there a particular bill that you are most excited about for state lawmakers to look at in the next session? Well, there sure is. Uh, one of them is, the, uh, is, a, is a model that the Supreme Court uh, just affirmed the constitutionality of uh, in a ringing uh, opinion a few weeks ago coming out of Indiana. That is the human uh, fetal remains model. Uh, that's the model that says that requires uh, all individuals and companies, uh, including abortionists, to treat human fetal remains humanely uh, as they would any other uh, human body. It, it both um, uh, makes it clear that the state regards uh, unborn life as human life uh, and insists that it be treated with dignity, which is something that the abortion industry obviously isn't interested in. Uh, and it resets the debate uh, when we can talk about uh, whether abortion should be permitted to destroy an innocent human life. I do think that changes the rhetoric, changes the dialogue a bit, and that's terrific. So, uh, that one is high on our list. Uh, the Prenatal Non-Discrimination Act uh, bill that you spoke of earlier, uh, the Supreme Court passed on that this time, but as Justice Clarence Thomas pointed out, it can't pass on those forever. And There are eugenic and very, frankly, evil uh, foundations for the abortion movement in America uh, that have to do with racism and uh, the desire for genocide uh, that he laid out very well. Um, so the, our Prenda model uh, protects uh, life uh, based on gender, based on uh, fetal anomaly, uh, other characteristics, and once again uh, teaches that uh, in the womb, even at very early gestational ages, uh, you can know whether a baby is male or female. You can know whether a baby uh, is a particular uh, race or has a disability or uh, things like that. And those should not be the reason for extermination, the reason for uh, destroying that innocent human life. Uh, finally, we like the 20-week model, uh, the limit on abortion at 20 weeks. Uh, that is both in the federal Congress and in the states. The truth is that abortion at 20 weeks is at least 35 times more dangerous than carrying the baby to term. So even if, uh, even if you're concerned about uh, women's health, you have to recognize that uh, the later the gestational age is, the more downright dangerous abortion is for women. 
Um, so uh, we think that uh, that's a great model. We think that uh, the Supreme Court is bound to take one of those cases soon, and we believe that uh, that model will be upheld and we'll keep working our way uh, backward earlier as the uh, decisions permit to protect more and more lives in law. Well, Steve, thanks very much. I know these conversations are essential because they're about essential human rights issues, um, but that also means that they can get kind of heavy. And so we're ending each episode of Life, Liberty, and Law with uh, what we call our weekly shot of gratitude. Steve, I'm hoping you can tell me something that you're grateful for. Well, Tom, I'm very grateful for the women of my uh, in my life who've gotten me into the pro-life movement. Uh, first, my uh, late mother, uh, my two sisters, uh, my wonderful wife. Uh, we're all here before me, and I'm very thankful for uh, their influence on me and helping me to see the beauty and power of life uh, and the value of uh, seeing it protected and my uh, terrific six kids. So... That's why I'm all in it. Thank you. Steve, I'm right there with you. I, I'm, I'm particularly grateful along those lines um, for my mother uh, who conceived uh, me unexpectedly uh, and, uh, and made the decision for life, um, which uh, I'm beyond grateful for, um, but is not always an easy decision to make. Many people don't feel it's an easy decision to make. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, you know, I think we're both alongside each other uh, in, in this movement um, for reasons of, of justice and of, of recognition of the, the gifts that we've been given in our lives. So, Steve, thank you for your advocacy for life. Uh, we appreciate you being here and look forward to speaking with you again. I'm Tom Shakley, and until next week, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law. <laughs>